Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and as always, I'm here with my co-host, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Welcome back, Amber. It's good to be here, guys. I was uh, Maine. So my husband's banned from Maine because he ate every lobster he encountered. Um, now, the way that you said that, I thought, I thought you, I thought, I, I thought also, Andrew had a band in Maine. I, I totally, I was gonna say the same as the, Oh, what, what instrument well, does he play? It would have to have some lobster reference in it. Here's how much lobster he ate on this trip. Perhaps rock the, lobster. The very first, how much lobster thanks, did he that's eat? Great. The very first day, he ate lobster at literally every meal. I think he ended up eating like four lobster rolls that day. Thrilled about that. Well, we get to the final restaurant, and he swore like, oh, "I'm gonna eat something different. We're having like a late dinner." And then he, of course, orders another lobster roll. And my sister makes some joke to the waiter, and the waiter starts making fun of him and how much he had that day. <laughs> the waiter called That's the police. That's the sign of the trip. Yeah, basically, he was like, "I this guy can't stay in Maine. We have to send him back." I'm, well, I'm glad I'm glad you're back, and it didn't just have to be me and Alex again because our baseball teams are currently playing each other. Oh, oh yeah, I bad was, blood here, huh? We were well, no, because what's actually happening is that we have been, we, we've been texting and like insulting our own teams and talking about how bad they are in like a race to the bottom of like uh-huh. actually is your team is worse such a beta male kind of and uh, I'm, sports talk i'm winning in the sense that my team is losing and i have been proven correct oh, so I that's see. so that's what's uh-huh. going on there it's true and i'm i'm fine with the outcome yeah no no, no i'm sure you <laughs> are clear um uh, well guys you guys did all the heavy lifting this week of um talking to our main guest we have sam reisman on the show later to talk about the fall of uh, law firm Leclerc Ryan. Really Sam, great, the, really uh, great chat. Yeah, the uh, he's the he's the grim reaper of uh, corporate <laughs> law firms. Yeah, um, but there are always really interesting stories about how yeah. really big firms, um, what kind of trouble they get themselves into, and how these things sort of fall apart. It's always very interesting to have that forensic chat about it. It's a good chat with Sam. Uh, before we do that, though, um, let's get to the news. The we are back on the privacy beat this week. Uh, with our old pals at Facebook, uh, the social network uh, behemoth, the only sort of the social network. I'm glad you uh, identified Facebook. Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> Facebook.com, yeah, like, the, you know, the website, the noted website. Used to be the Facebook.com, confused a lot of people. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, so Facebook is going to have to officially face a class action suit over its um, face scanning technology. Uh, the Ninth Circuit unanimously ruled that a class of uh, what stands right now, roughly 7 million users have a claim uh, under this Illinois law that shields uh, sort of biometric information data uh, uh, on the Internet. If I know one thing, if the if the headlines of the last couple of years have taught me one thing, it's that I, I want Facebook scanning my face. Like, that's what I, <laughs> That's the, the thing every day. I'm like, I wish Facebook just had a little bit more info on me. Well, tell, tell us more about what they're exactly doing, because when I think face scanning, I think of like how you unlock your... Yeah. Self in with your mm-hmm. face scan, but what what's Facebook doing? Yeah, so you, if you've, I don't go on Facebook that much anymore, but I mean, if you've been on it in the last like eight years or so, I'm sure you've noticed that when there are pictures, uh, you know, the, everyone's familiar with the concept of uploading a picture and tagging your friends that right. are in the picture. But Facebook has this technology that scans the that scans the pictures you upload and sort of harvests your facial, you know, data print. And basically is able to use that as to sort of, so I could upload a picture of Bill, and as I mouse over his face, it, su- it knows his face because of other photos mm. he's tagged in. So it suggests, like, hey, do you want to tag Bill Donahue? And this is sort of meant to just make it easier, I guess. You don't have to, like, type in someone's yeah. name. Um, anyway, it's real, like, minority reports type stuff. Like, I mean, it's just, they, they have learned your face right. um, across its platforms. And the problem for Facebook is that it might be illegal uh, under the 
this uh, sort of kind of wonky Illinois law that puts very tight restrictions on how internet companies can use uh, your biometric data, which is a, you know, the actual sort of data from your body, your personage. Um, a class of Facebook users uh, sued under that law in 2015, and Facebook has been fighting them every step of the way. They uh, got class certification at the trial court, and Facebook appealed to the Ninth Circuit. And uh, last week, uh, they, ha- they, they, they basically had been arguing that, you know, m- the fact that we, Facebook, are merely sort of collecting and harvesting your, your face data uh, is not itself a, a – you don't have, like, injury. You don't have standing to bring, a, to bring a class action against me. You know, you've not lost money. You've not been harmed by this. I said it a few weeks ago, and I'll say it again. I just – I love when a company harvests me. Yes, yes. (laughs) So many of them do in the year 2019. So how did that argument go? Yeah, like I said, they were at the Ninth Circuit sort of making that argument again. And last week, the Ninth Circuit uh, really gave it to Facebook right on the chin. Um, They said um, they ruled unanimously and they said that the these users had alleged real injury. Like the, the, the fact that, you know, you sort of took their their face, you know, scanning their faces and harvesting that information without their without their permission, um, is not some minor procedural violation. It is an actual harm that can give rise to a class action. Um, the judge, uh, was, it was written by uh, Judge Sandra Ikuda. She, she, she wrote for the, for the majority. And her opinion talks a lot about the sort of rapid development of technology and the very easy ways that data like this, facial recognition data can be misappropriated, whether right. it's, like you say, someone, some, you know, remote entity unlocking your phone with the use of your face uh, 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 scanned data, um, or, you know, being sort of tracked by different surveillance cameras and things like that. Um, the sort of power quote from the panel is, we conclude that the development of face template using facial recognition technology without consent, as alleged here, invades an individual's private affairs and concrete interests. Similar conduct is actionable at common law. So they sort of took that threshold question of whether or not this gives rise to class action harm uh, and said, yes, it very clearly does. So where are we in the case now? Does this mean Facebook has to undo this for the group of Illinois people or are we not that far along? We're, we're, we're just at the early stage about class certification, which has its own sort of legal you know, thicket to wade through. But they are going to go back now to the district court. Um, and have it out. There's um, there's uh, lots of stuff that was they, they were sort of getting the cart ahead of the horse at the Ninth Circuit talking about, like I said, this is an Illinois state law that's being tried in California federal court. And Facebook is sort of saying, oh, the reach of this law is maybe not as big as you think it is. There's a question about sort of when this infraction under the law is maybe to have taken place. Is it when you upload the photos? Is it when Facebook applies the, the scanning technology? Now, all that stuff is going to be had out, you know, when, when they get back to the district court level. Um, but for now, uh, the class stands, like I said, at about 7 million people. Um, and under this law, uh, the Illinois law, it calls for either a, uh, a $1,000 penalty per violation wow. or a $5,000 penalty oh. if it's a negligent violation. And in a class of 7 million people, you can see we can – I mean, damages are its own thing, and we'll sort of deal with that when we get to it. But you can see why Facebook is so alarmed here. You get into the uh, – the tens of billions of dollars pretty quickly. I was told that there would be no math on today's show, and well, I feel quizzed right now. Well, let's move on. The point uh, is, it's a lot of money, uh, and Facebook is pretty, uh, pretty nervous. Uh, so before we get to before we get to Sam's the interview with Sam, uh, we have some. You know, it's a slow, slow summer week. And, Dog days. Uh, we, uh, we there were, but as we were planning the show, we we saw that there had been a few different 
moments in court over the last few days where judges had had, you know, sort of quippy sound bites where they were really grilling attorneys or really coming down hard. This is a great segment to come back to after vacation. I yeah. feel like we're going to get I'm going to get caught up on all the juiciest moments from oh, yeah. court this past week. Well, so. and and no shocker, they were some of our most trafficked stories. Yeah, people the, when... pe- people are into that. This is like this reminded me of when I was sort of reading up on this stuff cuz I knew we were going to talk about it, it was uh, it reminded me of like of like player haters ball, but but but, <laughs> but judges. Yeah. So that's interesting. Well, what are our greatest hits here this week? So the first one was in California federal court. It was uh, Judge James Donato uh, was hearing a whistleblower case filed against Valiant Pharmaceuticals, which it basically says that the company fraudulently procured this patent uh, on one of its drugs to block a generic company from releasing a cheaper version. So that seems like a thing maybe a pharmaceutical company could do. Who knows? But just one problem. Uh, whistleblower cases, by their very definition, have to be filed by a whistleblower, by like someone inside yeah. the, the suit is coming from inside the house. Uh, <laughs> this case was filed by an outside patent attorney with publicly available info, or so so the judge believes the, all of the info was publicly uh, available. And the judge really hammered hard on that this week at a hearing. Quote, anyone in the world could have filed this case, Donato said. My grandmother could have filed this case. Nice. That's such a great quote. Boom, Imagine roasted. if you're that attorney in court. Really. Owned. Spent a lot of time putting this case together. Well, <laughs> you could have outsourced it to the judge's grandma, it yeah. turns out. So, what else um, we got? His grandma is known as being very litigious. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Uh, up next, we're staying in California, but we're going to bankruptcy court. Ooh. Yeah. We don't talk about bankruptcy that often on the show. That's true. Only when somebody does something like this. <laughs> so Judge Dennis Montali is a California federal bankruptcy judge, and he was hearing this case involving Pacific Gas and Electric, which um, it's the big utility out in California. They yeah. went bankrupt after all those catastrophic wildfires over the last couple of years. Apparently, the company, in their bankruptcy filings, they failed to disclose that they had paid a new CEO that was hired after they had filed for bankruptcy, they had they had paid him a three million dollar signing bonus. Um, oh, jeez! They didn't disclose it in the the in a very clear way, yeah. according to to this judge. So the quote is: "One rule is don't play games with the judge." Love going third person there from the judge. Uh, I'm, I'm I'm the judge. All right, don't play any games with me. So. The PG&E's counsel said that the company had, in fact, listed it, that it was in there, that it was it was listed as a, quote, transition payment in a mm. table uh, that was attached to this motion that we were arguing over. And the judge says, quote, that's sort of too clever by half. That doesn't say he got three million. <laughs> so it's just like, you know, you're you're up there and you're getting just I mean, the judge is telling you, like, you didn't tell me about you didn't tell me about a three million dollar payment that you made to a guy. I mean, well, we then, don't talk about bankruptcy much <clears throat> and I don't know uh, a ton about bankruptcy law, but I do know you have to disclose all the major things. Yeah, and, there's a lot of scrutiny yeah, on you when you uh, file for bankruptcy. Well, and then beyond well, even beyond them, you know, not saying that then his his explanation for actually we. It is in the filings if you yeah. if if you look real hard. That clearly <laughs> didn't fly either. He thought it was too clever by half. Well, actually, Judge. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> Hashtag, well, actually. So uh, our final thing, we're going to the federal circuit. We're going to talk about patent law, which also, like bankruptcy, we don't get to yeah. that often on the show because it's so it's exciting. It's great. You, you stop it. It's great. Uh, so the appeals court was hearing a case uh, in which Facebook was trying to use U.S. Patent and Trademark Office procedures to get a smaller tech companies' patents invalidated. And Facebook used this um, this sort of uh, 
procedural move that is available at the USPTO to add new claims after the fact to their claim against this smaller company. The USPTO has called this process joinder and and adding those kind of claims the way that they're saying that you do it is not typically known that way but but it was approved by this uh presidential opinion panel or I forget exactly what the yeah. uh yeah that's exactly it it's pop the pop yeah, yeah, panel yeah 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 it's it's sounds co- awesome committee committee <laughs> to plant parties uh, um, but uh, but so they had specifically ruled that this was an o- that in certain circumstances this was an okay procedure for companies to do. Very notably, that panel includes USPTO director Andre Iancu, who uh, you know he's a member of this panel that picks what kind of things you know these procedural things. Um, so the judge uh, he found the entire situation of like you know you're doing this thing and you're calling it a different thing. He found the entire situation very very frustrating, and he called out Iancu personally. This week, quote, so the director needs to get his act together to make sure he understands what you've got to do to get the substantive material across the boundary. And that's not joinder. Joinder (laughs) is a joinder of persons. Yes. This is funny on so many levels. One, anytime you're calling out the director of the USPTO, that's noteworthy in and of itself. But also, this is just such a. Uh, lawyerly type fight where oh, it's yeah. like, don't call it that thing. It's another thing. Call it the other thing. Oh, yeah. like, that's well, I think I deserve a round of applause for explaining this you case in, uh, in in two minutes. But uh... you do. That's a classic <laughs> law school kind of argument. Well, and it's way. also funny too. The federal circuit is where all of these things are heard, and there's sort of this, you know, the USPTO is there all the time. Right. Uh, like it's it's where things involving the USPTO are heard. So, sort of felt like almost almost like. I could tell him this in person if I wanted to, but I'm just calling him out in open court. It's great. Yeah, I mean, get your act together. Former big law powerhouse LeClaire Ryan began closing its doors last week, capping off years' worth of questionable business decisions, budgetary woes, and a hemorrhaging of its top partners. To give us the inside story on the firm's downfall is our own Sam Reisman. Welcome back to the show, Sam. Hi, thanks for having me. Good to see you. Um, so let's just uh, set the table. People in the legal world definitely know about the firm, but for people who might not know, let's talk about the firm. Let's talk about LeClaire Ryan. How how big of a deal were they? What kind of stuff did they do? And you know, when did people start to realize that something might be amiss here? Sure. So LeClaire Ryan was uh, founded in Richmond, Virginia in 1988 by Dennis Ryan and Gary LeClaire of uh, Hunton and Williams, which was another Richmond-based firm that, like LeClaire, uh, grew very quickly. Uh, it be At its height, it had had close to 375 attorneys and became a real national uh, presence with more than two dozen offices all across the country and a wide variety of practices. And it kind of positioned itself as a very forward-thinking firm that was very innovative about the practice and business of law. And um, what you saw over the last couple of years was, as you mentioned, just a a steady stream of departures out of the firm, um, which ultimately culminated in the announcement last week that its very few remaining members had voted to wind the firm down after just over three decades of operation. So a lot of stuff happens in inside law firms that we we don't see, and these these departures were something that you were documenting for a long period of time, and they were sort of a symptom of the problems. But but this week you wrote about some of the reasons why the firm went under, and one of the big themes was that they they expanded too quickly, that they were were chasing new offices, chasing new opportunities. Talk us through sort of how the firm expanded and why that ultimately became a problem. 
Right. After the firm had been open for about 20 years in, uh, in or around 2008, they began to embark on a strategy they called Partnership 2020, which was really sort of animated by this ambition to become a major global law firm, uh, to become one of, the, one of the world's great sort of full-service firms. And part of that uh, strategy came with this national expansion drive that was uh, described by co-founder Gary LeClaire as ready, fire, aim. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this kind of you know, leap before you look uh, ethos where the firm just began uh, merging with or acquiring more accurately smaller firms and opening offices all across the country. And you know, from the outside, this, you know, this appeared to be a working strategy for the firm. They did, as I said, grow to be um, uh, more than two dozen offices at one point all across the country, wide range of services, wide range of practices. It was kind of a success story, at least from the outside. Yeah, when I was reading your story, you know, one of, it was you, your story had like subtitles and or subheadlines, and one of them was a quote that quote "Ready, fire, aim." Mm-hmm. And I thought for sure when I started reading it, that was going to be a quote from someone who was criticizing the firm's like expansion strategy. Come to find out, it was actually like the stated like ethos of the of the head of the firm according to two former shareholders that yes. was Gar- that was how Gary LeClaire described the expansion strategy of the firm but uh, also in those um the, the sort of internal firm proposal for this partnership 2020, yeah. it, it did actually say we can be one of the world's great law firms our heroes will never ever let good durability be the enemy of the great so i mean that's that's where the firm had its sights set but so as we've seen that story didn't end well. So walk us through, you know, why that why that that kind of growth really sort of started to hinder the firm. It took, you know, a, a long time, I think, for even the firm to really realize it. But details about sort of the the effects of these expansions came to light last October when an arbitration panel issued an award. This was just to back up a little bit. Uh, a former shareholder sued the firm for gender discrimination. Mm-hmm, yeah, it got bumped to arbitration, and the arbitrator, the arbitration panel you know, found in uh, investigating the her claims that the firm had uh, all kinds of financial woes. And these got these got filed in court in a these got filed in federal court last uh, October. So, you know, things that were happening at the firm almost 10 years ago suddenly were in the public eye. Yeah. Things like it was failing to meet its budget in 2011, 2012, 2013 and mm. 2014. Things like it had maintained a, a culture of automatic pay hikes. Uh, for a really long time, it was paying uh, some lawyers uh, far more than their practices were actually billing, mm-hmm. and that was unsustainable. So all of these things were going on at least from 2011 to 2014. And according to former attorneys, um, these 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 problems persisted even after uh, 2014, which is the last year for which the firm's finances were addressed in this uh, this award that was uh, filed with court documents. But I think really where this starts to be a problem is one of the results of the firm consistently failing to make its budget was partners were not getting their at-risk compensation. That is their compensation that was actually pegged to the performance of the firm. This was happening year over year. And mm-hmm. that's when you start to see, starting three, four years ago, some real rainmakers and some real you know heavy hitters leaving for other opportunities simply because they just weren't getting paid and they just didn't agree with the direction that the firm was going in. That begins to chip away at the firm's revenue, further exacerbating its its problems. Right. It's sort of a snowball effect that you've got these people who are bringing in all this money and the problem to begin with is that you're not paying enough and, you know, it goes from from there. It's a story as old as time. Yes. And you also wrote that they were were sort of moving profitable partners into like management decisions. Yeah, there was was like weird personnel staffing decisions. There was an administrative decision at some point made to pull uh, the highly uh, productive partners out of their practices and install them in these management roles where they were sort of tasked with, you know, bringing about the firm's strategic vision, but they weren't actually, you know, generating any billings. Um, so that was something that you know, was further eating into the firm's margins. So you have, you have a lot of these these things that are, you know, kind of aggregating mm-hmm. and, and causing trouble yeah. for the firm over a, you know, 
period, so, period of several years. It's so interesting. The you know, it's something that we see from these big firms all the time. This talk of of you know growth, and we're a global firm, and we're yeah. doing this, and we're becoming a national player, and all this stuff. It's so fascinating to watch the see sort of the the problems that that causes behind in, in sort of behind the doors. Well, if you're not at the same time as you're realizing your ambitions to become a global firm, just remembering that you still need to like have lawyers billi- yeah. billing yeah. for your billing for their time and you know making more money than it costs to maintain their yeah, practices. Exactly. It's just some very nuts and bolts like ABC, like how to run a law firm stuff. Yeah, uh, yeah, you want to keep track of that stuff generally. <laughs> so uh, yeah, so we've seen bold visions at Leclerc sort of you know uh, start started to lead the firm astray, and and like many struggling businesses, it seems like they doubled down on bold and went went for this this you know almost a hail mary in terms of a you know i, I think in your story you phrased it law, law firm 2.0 that's kinda. not my phrasing that was the, that was the byword that the firm itself was using as recently as a few months ago so walk us through what that was and why they were you know what they what they envisioned well one of the things that uh, 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 multiple former shareholders said about Gary Leclerc is that he sort of saw himself as this visionary who could remake the, the business of law and one thing that he believed in very strongly was that uh, laws and regulations would change in the U.S. to allow for non-lawyer ownership and investment in law firms. And he was really intent that his firm would sort of be at the vanguard of that transition when it happened. So I think an, an intermediate step between the, the law firm business model as we know it and that was the firm embarked on this partnership last June with alternative legal service provider United Lex. And there was all this you know, fanfare about how this was a real innovative step forward for, for law firms and for uh, legal services and how you know this, this was going to change the game. And what it was essentially was all of Claire Ryan's non-lawyer personnel became employees of this new venture called huh. ULX Partners that was some joint initiative between Leclerc Ryan and United Lex. And the idea at the time was ULX Partners would sort of be this uh, this legal support business entity that other law firms mm. would partner with, would sort of invest in or hire. It was not, not really clear, but it never came to pass. Yeah. And a lot of former shareholders at LeClaire Ryan were kind of left wondering what the point of this partnership had been. Apparently, it had been pitched to them as a, a, a partnership that would deliver a, a much-needed dose of capital back yeah. into the firm and let them recoup some of the value of their shares. Uh, and that that didn't happen, according to former shareholders. Yeah, well, I mean, confusing and amorphous business relationships, not not exclusive to the legal sector. You yeah. see it a lot with failing businesses in all industries. Um, that's very interesting. The um, So as we're at the end stages here. Can you give us like a sense of scale? I mean, they would like, you know, they, they're at this sort of lofty perch in the in the legal world. And like, where are, where are we now? Sure. According to our survey data at the end of 2015, they had 378 attorneys, 156 of whom were equity holding uh, mm-hmm. shareholders. The firm reorganized last year and shareholders became known as members. But by the time they uh, by the time they announced the wind down, they were down to 40 members from 156. And I should add that one yeah. of those members who left was co-founder Gary LeClaire, who left a few days before the wind down was announced. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure that for the folks who were left, that was a, a sign of things to come. Um, so, w- what what happens next? I mean, the the firm announced last week that it was that it was dissolving. Walk us through what 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 we might see for this firm for this former firm going forward. Right, we don't necessarily know. The firm has said that they want to commence an orderly wind down, but it remains to be seen whether there's going to be a, a voluntary or involuntary bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's you know it's. No, 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 no secret that the firm has a lot of disgruntled former shareholders. Uh, we didn't even get into it, but the firm stopped making repayments of their capital earlier this year because their lender prohibited it. Mm. Uh, that was something that came out this year. Um, 
I think it'll be interesting to see whether there's any, you know, subsequent litigation that comes out of this, whether there is, in fact, a bankruptcy filing. Um, I think just sort of in general, uh, so much of the decision making at law firms happens behind closed doors. It'll be really interesting to see what else comes to light. Very interesting story about uh, law firms fall from grace, uh, which you're so good at telling us, Sam. Thanks again for coming on. Thank you. Their show is something offbeat, and Bill Donahue, your beat yet again provides a gem for us to talk about. Yeah, you're on, you're, you're on like a Ripken streak here, kind of a the, uh, uh, soft IP stories in the offbeat. Guys, I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to help. It's great. Happy We're happy to, do, to have you here. Happy to do my job. Yes. You know? <laughs> uh, so, the Ohio State University, uh, I, I stress the beginning of that. Uh, they, they applied this week to register the word the. As a trademark? Yeah. I, I love that. Anybody, okay. Yeah. Anybody who's watched a primetime football game in the last 10 years knows what we're talking about. Eli Apple, The Ohio State University. Vaughn Bell, The Ohio State. Marcus Williams, University of Utah. Marshawn Lattimore, The Ohio State University. Yeah. The, the school has made a big point to say, everyone knows this is Ohio State, but our, our true full name under the law is The Ohio State University. And it's become this, I don't even know what, a thing, a, a, a trope, a, a mantra. Uh, uh, yeah. Why where, do they care so much about that? I mean, because I point of pride. I went to law school at The George Washington University. <laughs> it also has a The to start well, that Well, first title. of all, you should try and get that going, just, se- just separately from like this. I never, when, it just seems like so unnecessary to add that in. Well, it, yeah. unnecessary or not, they do it. And uh, <laughs> so, so it's done. Uh, it's it's a it's a thing that they do. It is done. And now so now they yeah. now they formalized it where they uh, they so they sell shirts on their store where they write the as like a nod to this uh, okay. on their in in huge block letters they write the it's like a yeah. it's a thing. So um, they filed a trademark application this week to say that the is a trademark for them. Of course, that sounds pretty weird from the outside because it is uh, checks paper. The most common word in the English language. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty cool. Okay. Well, all right. Cool trademark what strategy, the, bro. What are the chances they get this registered? Well, it's not so much that they won't get it registered. So it, there was a lot of like hot takery on the internet after this I bet happened. I people freaked out, um, right? A lot of like coming from other, you know, wrapped up in college sports fandom where like Michigan uh, wrote that they were going to try to register a trademark for of. Of, yes. Yeah. <laughs> right. University of Michigan. Nice. So, um... Uh, you know, everyone wrote like these stories of like, oh my God, Ohio State is trying to trademark the. And like USA Today <laughs> took it a step further where they said that um, they basically asked like, well, isn't is anybody who has a Buckeye tree in their yard going to have to pay royalties to Ohio State? It was like, love it. It just so a lot of, like, lot of good faith interpretation of this of this, <laughs> of this of this legal concept going around. So the key to sort of note here is that like trademarks aren't this you know you don't own the word you they they will, that's what people act like they always are and that's super frustrating. They're su- and they're just it's like they're very limited the rights that you get. They could you know even if they even if everything goes according to the way that they want it to, they can really only stop someone from like doing using it on apparel in a way that like. Yeah. Will confuse people into thinking that Ohio State was selling that shirt. They can't stop other people from using the yeah. as part of other things. The they Irish band The The can continue selling their own t shirts. They're I good, think. baby. They're good. They are, yeah. So, uh, not as musical artists. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, well, that's, I'm, I'm not going to get into that but right anyway, now. But anyway, um, so, the, like, 
there's also reasons why they probably won't they're going to have like a hard time even registering it because Mm -hmm. uh it's so you you basically when you're applying for a trademark you have to show that you're using it as a trademark right and a common thing that people think they can do that they can't actually do is they'll put something on a t-shirt like across the front yep and they'll say look we're using it as a trademark give us a give us a registration that's like always refuse because that what the USPTO says is like you are using it as just a decorative ornamental design on the front of your shirt. Right. You're not using it as like Alex Lawson Co. to like make people understand that you made the shirt. Yeah. So it'll probably get refused for that. They could fix it later. But um it's uh it's definitely an interesting I think the most interesting aspect of the story was just how much people don't understand how any of this stuff works. Yeah. Where they're like they're like, oh my God, a company is trying to own a common word. <laughs> <laughs> And I know how you love that when people parachute into uh, trademark law and act uh, act all all scandalized. Do yeah, you get... do you hate that? Because I actually think it's funny. It is. It's. I mean, it's kind of fun. It's like you know that it's weird when like trademark law is trending on Twitter. Yes. Uh, those are, those are my best days. Yeah. yeah. Well, thanks for bringing that story, Bill. Sure. And Alex. We'll see you next week. We also want to thank our producers Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader. Our special guest this week, Sam Reisman, and contributing reporters this week, Allison Grandy, Nadia Dreed. Hannah Albarazzi, and Dorothy Atkins. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Little Glass Men. And our show's available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Google Play, Spotify. Find us everywhere. And please leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, too. If you want to know more about anything we've talked about today, check out our website at law360.com slash podcast. Thanks, and join us again next week. 